Gentlemen, good evening and welcome to Brooklands. Thank you for being here once again for many of you and thank you for supporting the Trust. Uh, a special welcome to our guests. It's great to see you. For those who don't know me, I'm Steve Clark and I have the honour and privilege, along with the team, of running these events on behalf of Brooklands. Now, I know tonight's going to be good because I've listened to David a little bit this afternoon. So without further ado, will you please welcome Simon Taylor, David Hobbs. Water. <laughs> You've got plenty more. If you believe that. Yeah, we've doctored it. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, hello again. Uh, I've been lucky enough to sit up here and talk to lots of racing drivers, but it's worth reminding you that these days, if you're a racing driver, you pretty much do one thing. You have a one-track mind. If you're a Formula One driver, you do Formula One. If you're a touring car driver, you do touring cars. Now, during David Hobbs's 35-year racing career, and since then he's had a 30-year broadcasting career. 40-year so broadcasting career, yeah, because they overlapped. That's quite right. Um, he was racing just about everything, from Formula One to Trans Am to Can Am to the Indy 500 to touring cars to Le Mans, which he did 20 times. And often he was managing to do these things simultaneously, or virtually simultaneously, in that he spent an awful lot of time in an aeroplane, mainly crossing the Atlantic. He was still living um, in the sylvan uh, village of Upper Boddington in the middle of the Midlands. Uh, while he was racing a lot in America, you then moved to America, where you lived uh, in Milwaukee, you now live in sunnier climes down in Florida. And we cannot possibly, in the short time we've got, tell you very much about David's career because there is so much of it and he can tell so many stories. And that's really why you have to buy his book. Because... <laughs> that's that is essential. Because an awful lot of it, which we won't even get to tonight is in the book. Now, what we thought we'd do is take from the book about 20 photographs. The book has about 220 photographs. We thought we'd take about 20, and David could talk to us about what was going on in the photographs. They're kind of approximately in chronological order, which gives us the excuse to show you if I know which button I've got to press. Is it that one? No? Is it that one? Yes. Here is not David's first racing car, it's his second. And I'm proud to be able to tell you that David Hobbs' first racing car was a Morris Oxford saloon with an automatic gearbox. And that didn't last very long. Here you are in your father's XK140, also with one of your father's uh, automatic gearboxes. And that's at Alton Park with you starting to get into trouble what happened at the end of that? If we'd taken a photograph about five, ten seconds later, what would we be seeing? Well, you'd see an open-top XK140. <laughs> uh, because I was foolish enough to try racing it on Michelin X tyres, not knowing the subtleties of actually using proper racing tyres. And it got away from me on the last lap at Alton Park at Old Hall. 
And of course, there was no guardrail stuff in those days. It was just, just an earthen bank. And unfortunately, it went up the bank, and then it kind of rolled down the bank, crushing the windscreen pillars and the roof. And I, there was a little hole for me to crawl out of. And um, I was with Mags, who's still with me today. And we were just young, fooling around in those days. And um, she would come up to Alton Park. And then on the way home, it did more damage than ever, because the, the bonnet opened. Uh, it obviously had got sprung in the, in the crash. What do you mean? You drove it home after that accident? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was a bit crabby down the road, but I mean, we, uh, we got it home and I'd, I'd rung my dad after the accident and he said, all I know, because it was, on, it was one, on the TV. And it was one of the few, few races in that was on the TV. And um, yeah. obviously that modified the car quite a bit and I had to, I had to get it fixed myself. And uh, I was an apprentice Jaguar. I was a, yeah, I was a Jaguar apprentice. So I had a bit of help from Jag. I got some spare parts that miraculously found their way out of the factory in the back of my other car. Um, <laughs> well, having gone from Morris Oxford to Jaguar XK140, your third car uh, was a little bit more serious. It still had one of your father's automatic gearboxes in it. And there it is, Lotus Elite, which you started off racing in the UK, but then you rather adventurously went to the Nürburgring and did the 1,000 kilometers. Yeah, my dad had, he had a small automatic transmission factory. He was making prototypes all the time. for every, I mean, tremendous amount of people had prototypes. Sheffield buses, Birmingham buses, a couple of trains, um, and people like BMC, Borg Ward, Daimler, um, Fiat, all had prototypes. Uh, and he, uh, some of the shares in his company were bought by Westinghouse Brake and Signal, and they built a big factory in Manchester to make these gearboxes for Ford, who said they were going to, who gave every promise of using it in the new, what was going to be the new Cortina and the Corsair. So Westinghouse and Dad thought it'd be a good idea, as I'd raced relatively successfully in the Jag, to have a go at some international races in the Elite, with, also with the automatic demonstrating it, Dad's automatic could be used with a very small engine because there was only had an 1100cc Coventry Climax engine. So we went off to Das Nürburgring and um, we, uh, we got there and uh, unloaded it in the paddock. In, the, in those days, the Nürburgring paddock was cobbled and it was a huge black, it was just like a big stable block, really. All those old stables, you remember? I mean, Stygian places, black as hell and, and, his, <laughs> and his Ferraris in there and Porsches and than us. <laughs> and then they are over the tannoy, he says, Achtung, Fahrlager, Achtung, Fahrlager, better. Herr Hobbs comes to the office at once, immediately, if not sooner, being crouched. So um, <laughs> I go up to the office and they say, oh, Herr Hobbs, your car has an automatic retriever, yeah? And I said, if you mean it's got an automatic gearbox, yes, it has. Um, they said, oh, well. One of your competitors in your class has protested you. Um, and as it's not homologated, we're going to have to move you up into the 1600cc sports car class, which obviously had really hairy cars, as Porsche RSRs and people like Joe Bonnier and Sterling Moss driving them. So we felt doomed on that. Anyway, we, um, we had a pretty good run. I suppose we did about eight or nine laps of practice each. And of course, the Nürburgring was completely new to both of us. Um, very long, 14 and a half miles, 170 odd turns. And um, lo and behold, on the last lap of the race, the leading Porsche RSR spun off. And we won the class. 
Alan <laughs> <laughs> Krauts, uh, very good at uh, money. So they had the most money, went to the bigger cars, and, and it went down on a sliding scale. So in the 1600cc sports car class, we got about eight times the money we'd have got if we'd won the 1100cc GT class. So my competitor did me a good turn there. Um, and after that, I went on, and we, that year, 1961, I won 14 races out of 18 starts with that car. So it was a very successful little car. And... Having gone then through Formula Junior with a Lola in the Midlands Racing Partnership with your friend Richard Atwood and others, your relationship with Lola meant that when Eric Broadley built a car which he thought was going to be the ultimate GT car, it had a Ford engine in the back, and of course it was the design that ultimately became the Ford GT40, they wanted to take the car to Le Mans, even though it wasn't really finished, and they got Dee Hobbs to drive it. And there it is. There it is, D. Hobbs. And as you'll notice, on the front of the car, under the number, you can see that sort of red smudge. Well, that's a trade plate. You know, you know red and white uh, trade plate, because Richard and I arrived at the factory at Bromley, and the factory at Bromley in those days was about as big as from here to Eric, and maybe, you know, <laughs> and there was only about five people working in there, including Tony Southgate, who was his draftsman. And the car was running really late. So on Monday, it might have been even Tuesday, Eric said to Richard and I, you know, you guys have better go on to Le Mans, do your medical, get your, get your license and, and scene and all that stuff. And I'll bring the car down. Well, the next day, Eric Hobbs interview, having, having driven that car down, hence the trade plate. And, um, well, you drove it down on the road from Bromley to Le Mans. I drove it down on the road, yeah. Um, one of their biggest problems was getting it out of the workshop. The door to the workshop wasn't really big enough for that car. <laughs> <laughs> so they go out of the workshop, they go on the road. And of course, when he got there, the frogs, being awkward sods, um, didn't like, couldn't get the luggage box in, and they couldn't do this, and they couldn't do that. And they said, oh, Monsieur Broadley, how, how you see out the back? And he said, well, he's got two little wing Oh, Monsieur, we cannot have that. We must have some mirror looking at the back. Um, uh, he says, um, well, as you can see, it's got a very flat rear window and you actually can't really see through it at an angle. So in the end, he dug a hole in the roof, cut a hole in the roof and put the mirror up on the roof. It doesn't look very well. And he, we just looked up through the hole and we could see out of the back. Um, and it was, actually, it was actually very quick. I think we might have missed the first, you know, because they only practice on Wednesday, only practice and qualifying Wednesday night and Thursday night. I have a funny feeling we missed Wednesday altogether. Um, and we, I don't know where we qualified, but in the race, it had a Colotti gearbox, which is horrible. And um, it had problem. And then, so Malcolm Malone, it was the chief mechanic, well, the only mechanic, um, he took the gearbox apart because he couldn't just replace it. He had to take it apart and fix it. And Malcolm had a big gap in his front teeth, and he used to stick his cigarette in there while he's working, <laughs> so that he could work and have a cigarette at the same time. <laughs> and uh, to give you an idea how different things are today, I mean, now this is, this is after the big accident in 1955, which killed 80-odd people. Um, and there's a pit counter, a little bit of a gap, the car, the gearbox spread all over the floor on rags, a white line about where the end of this booth is here, and about where those red stripes in the carpet are, were Ferraris going past the pits at about 180 miles an hour, because 
the pits were just before the Dunlop curve, and the last corner was the, uh, was the White House curves, which were about a mile away. So by the time they got up to the pits, I mean, they were honking on. And, um, and they were literally, there's Malcolm spread eagled on the floor with his gearbox, and there's cars doing 180 mile an hour, about three and a half feet behind him. So things are a bit different. Unfortunately, when we put it together, he had to leave one of the gears out because it had, it had broken or something. So we put it together. And, so I only had three speeds. Um, and with three speeds, I did the second fastest lap of the race after Willie Meres in the Ferrari. Unfortunately, he got stuck in neutral going down into the S's, and I put it into the uh, barrier, which was very disappointing for all concerned. Uh, but my main intention was to get out of the car, knowing that William R.S. was out on the track with me, because anybody that's driven with, with William R.S. on the track, you know you don't really want to be on the same track. So um, <laughs> I was ready for the off, but it was a long walk back. I've got one other, um, I mean, there are so many of the best stories that I've scribbled right down. One of them is, um, all I've said in my notes, was the Clermont Ferrand farmer's story. Mm. This was a, when you were racing, um, at yeah. Cla I think at Clermont. In the Elite. It was in the Elite, was it? Clermont Ferrand was like, how many, it wasn't 14, no, it was about eight miles. Eight, eight miles round, yeah. yeah. And it went around a big hill. Claremont Ferron is the world headquarters of Michelin Tire, so it's quite a big city. And just outside the city is, was the track, which was main, mainly of public roads. And it was very twisty going down. He just went round this hill, and it was very twisty going down and going back up again, and the pits were at the top end. And <laughs> I'm coming up the hill with the elite. Of course, uphill was a bit hard on that elite. Um, and behind me is Paul Hawkins, one of Ian Walker's... Um, Lotus 23s, that yellow Lotus 23. Now, I've always been very, um, uh, uh, very, very um, tough on drivers who block other drivers who are quite clearly a lot quicker and who race. You know, there's nothing worse than racing a back marker. Um, and there was a big, fast left-hander coming up. So I just pulled over a bit, and he let him pass. He pulled over to my side of the road. And so now I'm following him up to, up to this left-hander. And hey, presto, around this left-hander, going the other way, is a Simca with four fat French farmers in it. <laughs> with the window down and <laughs> You can just imagine the conversation in the car. They say, yeah, what is these fools doing? What are these people doing? What is going on? I do not understand. Have another cigarette. Anyway, these guys were on the way to market. And all the farm, they're up these drives, and every one of them had a, a gendarme on the door. And they must have somehow, this guy got out, and there's four of them in this bloody Simca going down the hill. So everybody pulled into the pits, and people like Nina Vaccarella are saying, hey, you see, you see what I think I see? Uh, I, am I Italian and going mad? Or is it, you see a cat? And I mean, so... That was a bit scary, because if I hadn't pulled over, Paul would have hit that car absolutely head on. Yeah. Well, we're going to go whizzing on through our pictures. That was when you were doing Formula 2 um, in a Merlin, I think. Oh, there's a Merlin. Um, and your single-seater career then took you into... And that's Tony Hegborn behind me with the blue helmet. Oh, yes. Well, he, and he, that, he, but there's a Brabham behind that. I don't know who that is, Denny or something? I think it's what Denny Holm, yeah. 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 And then came your first Formula One drive, which was... 
in the Bernard White BRM. Well, that was actually my first Grand Prix at Silverstone in a BRM. Um, as you can see, cars used to roll a lot more then than they do now. Uh, you don't see suspensions like that anymore. They don't look like they move at all. But um, that was my second race in a Formula One car. My first race was at Syracuse, Syracuse in uh, Sicily. And I drove for Tim Parnell in his uh, Lotus BRM. And it's a long circuit, and it again goes right through Syracuse and out and through another couple of villages. And the crowd, a big crowd, and uh, of course they're just standing on the edge of the road, picking their noses and eating their pieces, and they're right there on the edge of the road. And as the race progressed, they got closer and closer and closer. Until at the end, I mean, you're basically just driving through the crowd, batting them out of the way. And then on the slowing down lap, I mean, they were literally all over. The, you know, you had to be you know, running people over and running women's shoes off them. And, oh, God, it was incredible. It took about 20 minutes to do the last lap. And I came third in my very first Formula One race behind the factory Ferraris of John Surtees and Lorenzo Bandini. So I thought my Formula One debut was pretty good. Unfortunately... Nobody else did. So, um, and that was my second appearance at the British Grand Prix, and I came eighth. Well, meanwhile, uh, GT racing yeah. was becoming a larger and larger ma part of your life. And the Lola that we were just looking at, uh, the one that needed a hole in the roof to get its scrutineer-proof rear-view mirror, gradually developed into the wonderful Ford GT40. I love that picture because it's the two... You were, you were driving for John Wire, JW Automotive, in the Gulf colours of sky blue and orange. Yeah. And you've got three Porsches chasing you round the Daytona banking. What was that Daytona circuit like? Because you had a tight road section yeah. and you had these immense banked sections. Unfortunately, at the end, because that's 36 degree, that bank, um, so it is pretty steep. I mean, you can't, you can't walk up it. Um, Unfortunately, that's at the beginning of the race. At the end of the race, two of those Porsches were left and the two Fords had both gone. Um, mm. Early on in the race, Mr. Redmond, who was driving the eight car, had a spin at the kink. And while the car was still going backwards, unfortunately, let the clutch out, so that was him out. And then Paul and I were leading, um, doing very well, in the, Paul Hawkins. And um, at about seven o'clock in the morning, came in for a pit stop. And the team manager signaled me to get out. And I'm sitting in the car, you know, waiting to carry on my stint. And I said, me out, me out. So I got out and the fuel was running out the bottom of the car as quick as they were putting it in because the bag tank was in the, you know, in the monocoque cell. Um, the, they had rivets, they hadn't uh, taped over the rivets and it, wore, it just wore, a hole, it wore some holes in the bag. So um, we were out. But the, the banking was... First time I'd ever been on steep banking, and of course there was no chicane like there is now for the Rolex 24 hour. You just went straight down the back straight and you hit the banking. And as we went on the banking in the GT40, we were doing about 210, I suppose. Because um, they didn't have a lot of horsepower, because they obviously did, had, had virtually no downforce, so they didn't have much drag either. Um, but we had big windshield uh, sun deflectors across the top when we got there with, with Gulf written across, you know. Well, the only trouble was when you went on to the bank at turn three, NASCAR three, like that, 
suddenly you realise you couldn't see Dick. I mean, because this big was right there and the track's around here. And it's rather important to have a look around there. just <laughs> Because you want to be looking well. I mean, we're doing 200 mile an hour around a, basically a, a long, very long high bank turn. So you, you didn't lose much speed other than just drag, real drag, you know, and um, rolling resistance. So we had to take them, we cut them off first of all, we cut the corners off and you could only see a little bit. In the end, we had to take them off completely because you couldn't see Diddley Squat around the corner. Uh, and it's not a bad idea to be able to do that. Now, to demonstrate how varied your career was already, at approximately the same time, you were also in Formula One for Honda. And here is your Honda in the Italian Grand Prix. Parabolica, eh, eh. Uh, no guardrail, not much runoff area. There's another picture in the book I've got coming into the Parabolica. And you look at it, and there's, there's four cars. And luckily, I'm in front of them. I'm not sure whether I'm leading them or whether they're about to lap me. But anyway, I'm in front in the picture, which is all that matters. And the runoff area, both sides, there's virtually no runoff area and virtually no fence between the crowd and the car. I mean, a piddly little bit of wire fencing. Of course, you talk about wire fencing. The first time I went to Spa, uh, which was eight and a half miles long. I mean, you're just going through the Belgian countryside, and the only thing separating you from the cows and sheep was barbed wire fencing, which, as you can imagine, is very good for the neck, uh, if you should <laughs> go through it. But um, th that was a disappointing race, because um, Honda, Mr. Honda, was very keen on air-cooled air. He thought air-cooled was the way to go. Obviously, he would be, because he was very, very successful with his motorbikes. Uh, so they had a V8 air-cooled with their own chassis, which was made of magnesium, which once you set fire to it, it just burnt to a pile of ash, and you, couldn't, you can't put it out. Um, and they'd already had one fatality when Joe Slesser was killed earlier in the year at Rouen in that car. And but he they, burned to death, in fact. Absolutely. Yeah. Burnt, I mean, absolutely burnt to nothing. And they wanted me to uh, try, the, try it again. And they also had a water-cooled V12 in this car with a, with a, with a Lola chassis. So I dickered around. They, they wanted me to test the, the V8 and, and the V12. And finally, on a Saturday afternoon, they said, well, which one do you want to do for the race? And I said, well, I'll, you know, that one would be much better, really. So I only qualified uh, about 14th, and John Surtees and the other one was on the pole. But in the race, I made up a lot of places, and I think I got up to about fourth. And unfortunately, a, a valve let go and it dropped a valve and to tell you the Japanese boy they yeah that's 68 so 93 I'm now a Honda dealer in Milwaukee and I'm on the dealer council and we go to Japan for the, for the uh, Tokyo Auto Show the end of 93 and we go to the test track and we go to the factory and we go and see Mr. Kawamoto who is the worldwide head cheese and I'm with, you know, about 15 dealers from the United States. And we go into his office and we're all just standing there shambling about, you know, looking like dealers. And Mr. <laughs> Kawamoto jumps up from his desk and says, Mr. Hobson, David Hobson, I apologise. I apologise profusely. All my fault. Your engine broke in the Italian Grand Prix 1968. Because all, <laughs> all these other dealers go, what the hell? Of course, it... It raised, my, it raised my profile with the dealers about a thousand percent. I said, Jesus Christ, he knows Mr. Kawamoto. <laughs> well, continuing with variety, um, this has to be 
one of my all-time favorites as the sort of one of the ultimate Le Mans cars. This is the ferocious Porsche 917. It's a black and white picture, uh, but of course, from the GT40s you've just been looking at, you know that car is sky blue and orange. Uh, just let's ask about uh, JW Automotive, because we always hear that John Wire, with his death ray eyes, was a pretty ferocious man to drive for. How, how did you get on with John Wire? Well, I got on fine with John Wire, I think. It's kind of hard to tell. He wasn't you know, a very backslapping, jovial, pale fellow, well-met type. Boring uh, Hobbs. Um, <laughs> he referred to you as Hobbs, did yeah, he? Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, Mr. Wire, it was Hobbs later. Um, um, can I, near later Hobbs. Um, so, <laughs> and there was Jackie X and Brian Redman and my, myself and uh, Paul Hawkins in 68 and Mike Haywood in 69. At the end of 69, I went to test with the 917 at uh, Daytona in the winter, thinking I was going to carry on driving for them when they, they dropped the Fords and, and wanted to run the 917s for the Porsche factory. And... Anyway, going up onto the banking out of the infield, I went from, to go from third to fourth, and I went from third to second. And there was a rather loud noise behind me. Um, <laughs> but it was very flexible chassis on those 917s. And as you can see, it's a long way from the gear lever, which is just under the front of the windscreen there, to the right to the very back of the car. And they flexed a lot. Anyway, the, the Germans... The Porsche guys didn't particularly want me to drive this car. They wanted a chap called Leo Kinunen to drive it. And that gave them the perfect opportunity to get rid of me and, um, and put Leo in it. But during the year 70 and 71, practically everybody in the team blew at least one car by putting it in the wrong gear because the chassis flexed so much, mm. including Joe Siffert when he was leading um, this year, 1970, by about a lap. And he did it, went from third back to second. But unfortunately for him, he was right in front of the Gulf and Porsche pit. So <laughs> I wasn't the only guy to do it. But this car, but they did ask me and Mike Halewood one more time to drive at Le Mans. They ran three cars at Le Mans, and this is the third car. And um, we had, it had a smaller engine than the two main cars. We had a four and a half litre, they had five. Um, but they both dropped out. And we were up to like third or fourth, looking pretty good. And unfortunately, it rained. And Mike was very good in the rain, but unfortunately decided to do one more lap on the slicks before coming in for rain tires. And at the Dunlop curve, he hit a car that was already, had already crashed and was parked there. Um, and so we were out. Mm. And then when he went to see Mr. Wire, he definitely got the death ray look. <laughs> Aylward, don't call us. We won't call you either. <laughs> now, uh, quite a lot of your career was um, intertwined with a really remarkable man in not only American motorsport, but also in American, the American car world, in trucking and about everything else. And that's uh, Roger Penske. And everything with Roger Penske had to be absolutely immaculate. And when he wanted to run a Ferrari, when he got the Ferrari from the factory, he took it completely to pieces, put it together again, much better than Ferrari would have done it, painted it lovely dark blue. It was absolutely immaculate. And you were driving it with Mark Donahue. 
And by the middle of the race, it looked like this. Yeah. Not quite so immaculate. Mm. Um. I mean, that if you look at the tank tape, it's not only at the front. Look at it around the windscreen, holding the left-hand door shut. Uh, uh, tell us what happened and, and what it was like to drive when it was like that. Well, when we arrived, the car was just pristine and immaculate, and all the British press and the French and the German press all said, ah, typical American bullshit, you know, it's all spit and polish, yeah, better things, absolutely useless. So we were on the pole by about two seconds, and um, the golf team were just so choked, they were just so pissed. Of course, this was the first year that, a second year that I wasn't driving for them, so I was extremely happy that we were quicker than they were. And um, Mark and I led the race easily. And then you had, in those days, because there's only ever two drivers, you didn't have three drivers. And, and it was the worst driver's nightmare. I'm, I'm in, the, in the caravan, we had a little caravan, and I'm having to lie down. And I suddenly realized Mike's, uh, Mark's in there. And I said, what are you doing here? Oh, what the hell are you doing? He was supposed to be out there anyway. Vic Elford had blown a tire on the banking and had had an incredible spin, raising a ton of dust and um, stuff in the air. And, um, and uh, Mark and everybody else slowed down, obviously. And some prat in a 9-11, which we had lapped about 3,000 times, <laughs> went and ran into the bloody thing. Um, and we put, all that, we put about 11,000 yards of tape on and we, and we still came third. <laughs> um, but it was, and Roger, everything he touches turns to gold, um, except when I'm involved as well. Um, because we never won anything in that car, and that is the most iconic, the most famous, the most lusted after, and the most expensive 512 in the world. And we never won Dick. Um, we went C Ringer on the pole, and he runs into Pedro Rodriguez. We go to Le Mans. Now, Le Mans, we, probably, uh, we might have won, but we didn't have a long tail like the Porsches. But we were running third at 7 o'clock at night, and the engine blew. And we went to Watkins Glen three weeks later, and the steering arm broke off the upright. But Le Mans was probably the most crushing, because we had qualified fourth. And <clears throat> on Friday, which is you know, the engine day, day of rest, Roger says, uh, <laughs> we get Ferrari giving us a new engine. We're going to put a new engine in. And Mark and the chief mechanic, Woody Woodard, said, no, 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 no. It's, it's great. It's, it's because Roger, again, he, he, did, he took the car apart and put it together again. And he had Al Bartz, who does Chevrolet, he's a big uh, Chevrolet engine guy out in California. He used to send the Ferrari engines to Al. Al would take them apart, blueprint them, and put them together. And they were much better than they were, than they were when they came from Ferrari. So Roger suddenly says, we want to, we're going to put this new engine in. So everybody's against it except Roger, and of course he's the boss. So um, change the engine. And we lent our engine to North American Racing Team, which also had a Ferrari 512. Well, guess who came third with our, <laughs> with our bloody engine? Um, and guess who's standing with his thumb stuck up his backside watching it? Um, so... All very traumatic, but uh, you say Ro Roger, Roger, you know that Roger is the biggest dealership owner in the UK yeah. by far. 
Yeah. He owns about 150 dealerships in, yeah. right here in England. I mean, yeah. you've got an American undermining your economy right now, and there he is. <laughs> and, and I mean, also typical of Roger Penske, there he was, the big boss. Oh, yeah. And you would think that the guy in the pit lane would be his chief mechanic or whatever, but there is Roger himself actually running the team in a 24-hour race. Uh, it, it, is, that's, is that you or Mark in the crash? That's Mark. That's Mark, yeah. 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 But, well, <laughs> Roger is now 80. He was 80 a um, month ago, or a bit less than a month ago. And I went to Sebring last Friday to sell my book called Hobbo, which is on sale right here. <laughs> Just so happens. And it's a mere whatever it is over here. Um, and I went there to sell the book, Hobbo, like I said last Friday at Sebring. And of course this year, Roger, again, his ability, he talk about the Teflon man. I mean, the ability to run different manufacturers and, and get on with all of them. Anyway, this year he decided he's gonna run Acura, which is a division of Honda, in the IMSA uh, series championship with a LMP1 car. And um, he was at Sebring last week when I'm selling my book called Hobbo, which is here, we went <laughs> to the Hall of Fame. Um, they asked me at the very last minute to speak at the Hall of Fame because AJ Foyt, who was supposed to be there, uh, had got stung by bees. And so they asked me if I'd do it at the last minute. And we're at this cocktail party last Friday night when I was in Sebring selling my book. Um, <laughs> and Roger's standing there looking absolutely as immaculate as ever, yeah. 80 years old now. Yeah. And, um, and he's running the team at Sebring last Saturday. And in a couple of weeks' time, he'll be at Phoenix running the IndyCar team. And in the meantime, he'll be running the NASCAR team at a couple of NASCAR races in between. And then on Monday morning, he's always back at work because he goes in the private jet. And as soon as the race is over, you know, he says, OK, boys, I'll see you, well, you know, back on the jet, back wherever. And he just travels like a blue-ass fly all over the world still. It's just amazing. And he's 80. When so many uh, companies that you wouldn't have expected, he owns Marinello concessionaires. You want to buy a Ferrari in this country, road gang Ferrari, you're buying it effectively from Roger Penske. If you drive into London from the M25, you're going in on the main A4 and you go over that elevated section and the biggest car dealership of all, it's a huge glass skyscraper selling yeah. Audis, belongs to Roger Penske. It's extraordinary how, how, I mean, he's 80 years old yeah. and he doesn't seem to have stopped. Well, he keeps on coming over here and buying more dealerships. Uh, <laughs> yes. It's really weird. And last, last Friday again, when I was at Sebring selling my book, which uh -huh. also <laughs> um, uh, Roger was talking to uh, Dindo Capello, who, was, who has won Sebring five times for Audi and has won Le Mans four times, for, three times for Audi. And Dindo is very proudly telling us about his Audi dealership in Bologna. Oh, yes, I have an Audi dealership in Bologna. He's very nice. Because uh, all my years with Audi, I have a... a, 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 a and Roger says, yeah, I got the BMW and the and this Mercedes store and the, uh, every other bloody car except Audi. All the dealerships in Bologna are all run to Roger. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now let's go back to single-seaters because this is you driving in Formula 5000 uh, for Hogan. And that red car behind me is a pathetic car driven by an even more pathetic driver, Sam Posey. 
<laughs> who wrote the foreword to my pathetic book, which is actually on sale. <laughs> but that's at Seattle Raceway in, uh, obviously, Seattle, um, Washington State. And kneeling on the, the left side of the picture, this chap here, that is Bill Pinckney, who um, was my co-driver at the Nürburgring when we won the class. In, in the Elite. In 1961. Bill had been a very, was a very successful driver. He was very, very fast, and he moved. He had a Healy Silverstone, not, a Healy, not an Austin Healy, a Healy Silverstone. Then he bought a Lowe's Celeb and was quick as hell, so that's when we decided to drive together. But he realized, uh, but he had a big, he was a, really real, a real wheeler dealer, old, old Bill, and he um, decided to go into pig farming. And, uh, I mean, he had like, I don't know, 4,000 sows at one stage. And this trip here was he came over to America because Indi we went to Indiana. Um, and Indiana and Ohio are the big, big farming states in America. And he had come over to learn all about uh, pig husbandry and what the latest things were. So <laughs> while he was there, he thought he'd come with me to Seattle. And fortunately, you won the race. And, in fact, you won the championship. In oh, easily. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, we're, we're going to uh, we're going to stay in America. Beat, beating that one, that pathetic one behind <laughs> I should say Sam Posey is one of your best mates, yeah. and, and you've done a lot of commentary work with him as yeah, well. That, yeah. yeah, he's great. Um, staying then in America, reverting to Roger Penske, uh, you raced for him at Indianapolis, and there is the car looking absolutely immaculate. There's you in your gold knickers also looking absolutely immaculate. That is the photograph that was taken before the race. Correct. The qualifying. Uh, and the car is? That was a Lola um, with a big Ford uh, four-cam engine in, which they made... What did they make those originally for? Um, but anyway, it was a big four-cam Ford engine. They're big suckers. A big... With, with, with turbo? With, oh, yeah, big turbo. So what sort of horsepower? Well, I mean, uh, cranked up, it probably gave eight or nine hundred. Um, and that car, for instance, you know, as you can see, no wings, no nothing. Uh, slightly wedge shape. But we'd do 240 down the straight and only average about 170. So you had to do a lot of left foot braking. But you, had to, you couldn't just lift the throttle right off, otherwise the thing would just fall flat on its face. So you had to keep your right foot on the pedal so it keep some boost and just slow it down with your left foot. And it took a bit of technique getting used to that. And um, it was, um, but it would do, you know, I, I averaged about 170, 171, 170.8 or whatever. Uh, but we were doing nearly 240 down the straights. So but the corners at Indy, uh, which with current cars with all the downforce and the wings out. and so on are flat, but there they were pretty serious well, corners. We're not flat in those days, I've been telling you that, mate. <laughs> Well, that is how immaculate, ladies and gentlemen, the car looked before the race. How it starts. Let's have a look and see how it looked after the, or during the race. Well, actually, this was actually the end of the race, as far as I was concerned. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did 2,000 miles of testing, because in those days, when they said the month of May, they mean the month of May. I mean, you got there about April the 28th, and you were there, and you went round and round and round and round and round every day. I did about 2,000 miles of testing. Now, Roger had bought a new McLaren M16. This was the car that Mark Donnelly, who had driven the year before. For 1971, he bought uh, a McLaren M16, and McLaren had two, one for Denny Holm and one for Peter Revson. 
And Mark Donahue was quicker than the, revs, than the other two every day, which got up the nose of Teddy Mayer enormously, and Teddy Mayer being the owner at the time of McLaren. This is before Ron Dennis's day. And um, anyway, for some inexplicable reason, on race day, for the race, they decided to put some lighter gears in. They drilled the gears, because those human boxes were pretty heavy. But we'd already done a couple of thousand miles, so why? Anyway, they put these lighter gears in. So once, and, and to Mark's absolute chagrin, um, Peter Revson got the pole. Mark couldn't believe it. He'd been quickest every day. He and I had had 30 free meals because the fastest man in the day got a free meal for, for him and a guest at a, at a steak joint on a, on a shopping mall just right by the speedway. <laughs> so he and I dined every, every day with a week free, except on the one day it counted, uh, qualifying day, and, and Revson knocked him off the pole. But in the race, when the race started, I mean, Roger and Mark, Mark between, I mean, they just shot off into the distance. Then his gearbox broke. So he pulls over and parks between turn three and four and just left the car there, which is what you did in those days. Now you've got to tow it in and faff about with safety cars and crap. Anyway, he's just left it there. I'm humming along, and um, I just had a fuel stop. Now remember, those cars held 75 gallons of fuel, so that's nearly 600 pounds of weight. So the difference between full and empty is tremendous on handling, obviously. And on performance, I mean, the thing is really sluggish when it's full of fuel. Anyway, I'm going around, and I'm, I'm back to about 16th or 17th spot after the fuel stop. And this guy here is in the sugar right prune special is Rick Muther. And, uh, He's the guy on his this side. This guy here. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> coming off turn four, there's this most terrible clattering and banging, and, and my car suddenly stops forward motion. Um, and so I dip the clutch. I thought I'd blown the engine. So I dipped the clutch, and <clears throat> I was... I, shot past the pit in, and I'm looking uh, somewhere to park it, I'll probably go down to turn one and just put it on the grass as you go into turn one. Then while I'm looking in the mirror as to make my move over the track, I suddenly think to myself, where is old Rick Muther? Otherwise, in this case, known as Rick Mother. And Rick had swerved to miss me when my car had suddenly slowed up, hit the inside wall, and bounced back, and although I couldn't see him, he was about to rejoin me just right here. Um, <laughs> and then we spun down the road, and uh, his car went right up on two wheels. How it didn't turn over, no one knows. And, um, and then in getting out, I was covered in oil from head to foot, because when I hit the wall front, on the front of the car, it split the oil tank. And it covered me in hot oil all over my visor. So just put 75 gallons of fuel in. I'm ready for the off because the one thing we didn't like in those days, the, the real killer in those days was fire. I mean, they were, they were just terrible. Fires were terrible. And so I stand up in the car and look out the back, put the visor up, looking back towards turn four. And it kind of looks clear-ish. Um, so I set off for the pits, which isn't that far away. As you can see, it's not far from the pit. <laughs> well, shit. <laughs> Have you ever tried crossing the motorway? I mean, when they, you know. <laughs> Even under the yellow flag, they're probably still doing 150. And I suddenly realized I'm getting near the pit wall that A.J. Foyt in his car is approaching me at an alarming rate. And there might be a bit of a nip and tuck here who's going to make it first. So <laughs> I leap up into the wall. And there's a picture of me going up on the wall like that with my legs like that. And old A.J. Foyt is right under my, my, under my 
Let but my that training picture, lady. I should tell you, ladies and gentlemen, it's, a it's in the book. It's in the book. It's in the book. <laughs> <laughs> Which is just over here. Now, oh my God, is Eric Vernon Rowe? <laughs> the um, ah, another class of American racing which uh, you starred in was Can-Am. That's one of my favourite corners at Laguna Seca, the corkscrew, where you feel, if you're driving it, as though you're going off the edge of a cliff. Yeah. Uh, that's you in the McLaren, and behind you in the shadow, who would that be? Probably Jackie Oliver. Yeah, Jackie Oliver, yeah. What and were those Can-Am cars like? I mean, they were, they were pretty big machines. They were very big and very powerful. I mean, they had like seven and a half litre V8. They gave about, about 700 horsepower, maybe a little bit more. But they also gave massive torque. So, you know, it had like five or 600 pounds feet of torque at very low RPM, you know, around about two, 2,000, 2,500. So when you touched the throttle on that sucker, I mean, it took off. Uh, it didn't fuck about. I mean, it went. And <laughs> rear tires are like that wide, so you had plenty of grip. Um, and I had driven a, a whole bunch of Can-Am cars over the years. I started, I drove one first in 1969 and 70, 71. 71, I, at 72, I drove the factory Lola, the T310, which is probably the worst car that Eric Broadley ever made. It was just absolutely awful. And then the following year, I drove that car, which was the last McLaren, the M20, which had been Peter Revson's car the year before. But <clears throat> in spite of it being such a beautiful car, it still got beaten the year before by um, George Folmer in the Roger Penske um, Porsche, 91710, which was a turbocharged open Canon car. Because um, Mark Donahue uh, tore his leg up in a, in a shunt and, um, and had to miss a few races. And Anyway, George won the championship. So the year after, I come in with, uh, Roy, with uh, Roy Woods uh, and that car. And we knew we were, you know, we were going to be pasted because, but we kept on making the engine bigger and bigger and bigger. I mean, we had up to nine litre at one stage. But of course, it was a bit unreliable. Um, and I can't remember what happened in that race, but probably one of the best races I ever had in my life was at Watkins Glen. Uh, and I came second to Mark Donahue, who by that time in 1973 had the Porsche 917 uh, 1030, which was slightly extended wheelbase, uh, a bit less twitchy, been strengthened, so it's a bit less flexible. And I mean, he just dominated the series. McLaren had, had long given up, they'd gone, they'd given up. Um, and at Watkins Glen, I came second to Mark and I was the only guy on the same lap as him. And I beat eight of the other Porsche 91710s driven by people like George Farmer, Brian Redman, who's a big friend of Rebecca, um, and um, uh, Jerry Schechter, a few other also ran George Falmer. <laughs> Great stuff. Usual dross, usual bat markers. Well, here's some more of the versatility because we're now going from, we've, we've been looking at Indy, um, Indianapolis, we've been my looking at Can-Am. Uh, we now go to back to Formula One and there is the works Yardley McLaren. With the moustache. Monza again. Yes. Now, that was a it was good and bad. Mike Haywood had crashed the Yardley car at the Nürburgring and broken both his legs. 
So I went to see him in hospital in London on numerous occasions, and between us we cooked up the idea that I would be his replacement driver at McLaren. Now this is later on in the year after I had come fifth at Indy for them in the M16B. And so I was natural to, to take over from him. And I took over for the Osterreich ring, the old Osterreich ring, and the Monza. And that's, and seeing those old pictures, you know, reminds me that to be a successful Formula One driver, a really successful Formula One driver, you've got to be an absolute prick. I mean, <laughs> you can't mess about, you can't pussyfoot around. I mean, you've got to do things. And Phil Kerr was my engineer on that car. And Phil Kerr really wasn't an engineer. He was more of an admin guy. He'd worked for, he'd worked for Bruce since they were young. He set the whole thing up. Um, of course, Bruce, by this time, had long gone. But, um, and I wanted to do things to the car. And he said, oh, no, we don't do that. No, oh, no, I wouldn't do that. Mike wouldn't have done that. And you know, I said, oh, OK, then, all right, whatever. You know. So I came eighth. And I'm absolutely sure, because I knew Monza quite well. I didn't know Osterite Ring at all. I'd never been there. And I came eighth there, too. But I think at Monza, I should have come maybe you know, fourth or fifth, maybe, uh, because I let him talk me out of doing what I wanted to do. And I should have been like, all those guys are complete jerks. I mean, absolute jerks. And they don't mess about. They want things done. You know, Michael Schumacher, if he wants something done, boy, you've got to be done. Otherwise, he walk out the door. And Emerson Filippoli, Michael Schumacher, um, Lewis Hamilton, Sebastian Vettel, I mean, Babyface little Sebastian Bethel. You wouldn't want to get on the wrong side of him in the driver's briefing. So <laughs> you've got to be a twerp. Uh, and uh, I, I just, I guess I didn't, I was motivated enough. To, I wanted to win the races badly and I always wanted to win. But I guess I didn't want it enough in some way that I didn't fully understand. You know, mm -hmm. I, um, I didn't realise that you had to be such a, Mm. Um, so I, um, but that that would have been a nice try. So I wanted to do the last two races of the year were Mossport and Watkins Glen, which I knew really, really well. I'd won at both of them in Formula 5000 cars and in GT cars. I'd, I really knew the circus well. And they put Jock and Mass in, and of course he came 16th in Canada and 14th or something in the USA. And I'd come eighth in both these races. Um, one of the circuits I'd never seen before. So I think I could have done better because they, then they kept him in for two more years after that. I suppose I was a bit long in the tooth. What year was that? 74. So mm. I was, what, 34, 35? No. Mm. Maybe they thought I was too old. But you had a and Mike Wiles is 88 <laughs> and he races, and he races like there's no tomorrow now. <laughs> So you see, he's a jerk. There's hope for you, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, GT racing, long distance endurance racing, yeah. that really occupied a lot of your time. That is the fabulous J. David Yurst built Porsche. You were racing with John Fitzpatrick. John Fitzpatrick, that's mm. Le Mans 1982. That car arrived at Le Mans, uh, ready built by Yost, and. Um, we practiced and qualified, and um, it was the long tail car, so it, it was doing like 225 down the straight. Those 935s had a lot of poke. Um, I mean, they had like 700 and something horsepower. Um, still a very basic car, still just a bloody Porsche 911, really. Um, 
on steroids. Um, <laughs> big fucking steroids. Um, we were running fourth, and the Rothmans had their first, their 956s, which were brand new, you know. We thought, well, there's no way that they're all going to just finish, you know, Derek Bell, X, uh, oh, I don't know, uh, was Al Holbert driving? No, Hans Stuck. Yeah, good, good crew of drivers, Jochen Mass. Um, and we thought, well, there's no way they're all going to finish. I mean, they're brand new. They're just, you know, well, of course, they finished first, second, third, and we finished fourth. Um, <laughs> I mean, we won the class. We won the GTX class by miles, um, literally miles. And um, it ran absolutely faultlessly, but uh, we were thwarted again because <laughs> those bloody things all finished first, second, and third. But it was a nice, nice car to drive there. Unfortunately, Rolf Stomlin was killed in this car the next year at Riverside. When we were racing two, we had a 9.35, short, you know, regular one, and the, and the long tail. And he and Derek were driving the long tail, and me and Fitzy were driving the short, the, the regular one. And we were lying first and second. And, um, and Rolf Stolland had a huge crash down at turn nine at Riverside, which you, you know, none of you would know, but it was, it was a long straight there, a couple of hundred mile an hour easy, with a very fast left-hand sweep. I mean, it was, all, it was really straight, but it but had a left-hand sweep to it. And then at the end, there was turn nine, which was quite banked. It had about, I don't know, 10 degrees of banking, maybe a bit more. And a wall all around the top. And anyway, poor old Rolf ran into the end of the wall when the tail came off. And I remember it so well, because that morning, Fitzy, me, Rolf, uh, Tim Schenken, who was our team manager, uh, and uh, Derek, We'd all had breakfast. It was a lovely sunny day at Riverside, and we'd all had breakfast at the Howard Johnson's. And we'd had a good fun breakfast, you know, egg bacon and coffee and lots of laughs, and me taking the mickey out of Germans and, and <laughs> Rob, Rob, Rob stopping and laughing dutifully, <laughs> thinking you'd twat. But, um, and then he was killed. And I mean, that. And in the end, Derek and I won the race, but I mean, it was a bit of a hollow victory because. And John Fitzpatrick has been really, really, really worried for what, nearly 30 years now that somehow he or the mechanics were responsible for the back. The back came off. Um, and then just recently, John saw a photograph that, he, that somebody sent him. And it showed him, Rolf, clipped the wall at turn six, uh, went wide, got the tail out, it hit the wall. And, and that's what dislodged the tail. So John, at last, can sleep easy because he he's been wondering, you know, was it me or the crew that somehow got it wrong? You know, did somebody not put the pin in right or the clip over over the centre for the clip? Uh, so he's a, a very relieved man now because mm. he just only just recently saw these photos of where poor old Ralph had clipped the mm. clipped the wall and broken broken the back. Now, you did Le Mans 20 times. Uh, and I didn't win it once. <laughs> Isn't what, that amazing? What, what's the... Uh, nowadays, you have, as, as we all say, you have three drivers at Le Mans, and the cars are much more reliable now, and they all drive absolutely flat out all the time. It's like kind of 24 little one-hour sprints. Yeah. But in your day, you had one co-driver... Yeah. Your relationship with that co-driver presumably was quite important. If you didn't like your co-driver, then nothing worked. Well, you had to like him and you had to respect each other's driving styles. I mean, when I drove with Ronnie Peterson in the 
320. I mean, he was just so laid back. Hobby, you know, it's your car. You just set up how you want. I'll drive it. And of course, obviously, did good. Um, but yeah, when Paul and I would drive the GT40 there, or Mike and I, we'd make allowances for each other. And he'd say, "Well, I want the front a bit, bit, a little bit stiffer than that, or a little." softer or whatever and you say okay well I can live with that you know whatever and so you, you make adjustments we didn't have all those super adjustable seats like they have now you know the inserts and whip it in and whip it out and all that so um, you basically had to sort of you could maybe move the seat back as the forwards a bit um, so you, you had to adjust for each other and of course the, the, you were only allowed to do four hour stints it was a max but you basically ended up doing four-hour stints, so the guy who was off could could get at least some respite. Now they have three drivers, and of course, so you can, suddenly you got eight hours off. Um, and you're all... I mean, when I got in the car, when I put my suit on at two o'clock on Saturday afternoon for the four o'clock start, I was still wearing that suit at six o'clock on Sunday before I took it off. Yes. Because half the time, it sort of attached itself to me, and you couldn't get it off. You had to sort of peel it off, because it all... It had, glue, it had grown onto your body. Um, but... And, 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 you know, you had nowhere to sleep or rest. I mean, you had a little, little caravan. and um, So you, you had to be, you know, and of course, the, you know, the driver, don't forget, the driver was the data in those days, no data collection. So you couldn't have some engineer saying, oh, when you're going to the kink, you know, you need to do something, you need to change your approach because you're putting too much weight onto the left rear tyre or whatever. I mean, you, you just had to do that yourself. You had to... You, you were the one that told them what the car was doing because without yeah. you, they would have no idea. It's not like that now. No. Uh, well, you said that was quite a primitive car because it was just a 911, but it was hugely more sophisticated than the next car we're going to look at, which you also raced, which is NASCAR. <laughs> what? Now, that's NASCAR on the Daytona banking in yeah. that brute what on earth was that like? Just look at the diameter of the exhaust pipe right under your left ear. Yeah, right under your left ear and right under your left foot too. So the floors got very hot. Yeah, and um, I, uh, in, in 1976, a friend of mine got some Coca-Cola sponsorship and we took it to BMW and to Benny Parsons. And I drove with Benny Parsons in the Daytona 24-hour race in the, in the factory BMW. And Brian and uh, John Fitzpatrick and Peter Gregg uh, drove the other two. And um, we drove together. And uh, we had a terrible race because we got water in the fuel and we just had a terrible, terrible race. But part of the quid pro quo was I would drive Benny's backup car in the Daytona 500. Um, and that's what that is. And because um, <laughs> it, it was an older car. Anyway, after we practiced, you know, I'm going, I'm going around flat out, and I'm only doing 178 around. I couldn't, I couldn't get more than 178 out of it. And Benny and you know, Kale Yarbrough and the other guys are all doing around about 182, 183. And I had a mechanic called Tex. Tex had bib overalls, pinstripe bib overalls, a big Texas hat on, a bloody great hammer, a bloody great screwdriver, and a big adjustable wrench, and a bag that he put them in, and that was it. Um, <laughs> So, and he spoke with a very, very broad Texan accent. So, Benny comes to and he says, what's up? And I said, I can't, I'm flat out, I can't do more than something. Okay, let me, oh, I will look, I'll sort it out for you. Goes around and around and around, 178 mile an Gets out of the car, says, well, I guess 178 is what it's got, I guess I'll, you know, Tex will fix it. Oh, that's the last I saw of Benny. Um, 
And then in the race, they have 120, they were 150 miles now. In those days, there were 125 mile qualifying races on Thursday. And I came eighth in the qualifying race, which actually wasn't bad. Eighth out of 30 something starters. And uh, so I started on the eighth of the race. So the race gets underway, and now there's what, 44 cars or something out there? And I'm towards the front end of the pack. Anyway, those cars take some winding up, you know, because they weigh. 3,700 pounds. Um, and you go, you know, you're just rolling start, but you go over the start finish line and I didn't want the way you know, the Americans do. And the rockets going off and all that shit. So you go, because <laughs> uh, very wide ratios, because the thing's geared for like 200 miles an hour, it's only got four speeds. <laughs> so you get through turn two, and then now you're on the back straight, now you start to pick up speed. And then you hit turn three, and, that, and turn, finally turn four. And as you come off turn four, you're more or less up to top speed. And of course, the car is rocking around and buffeting like hell, because it's right in the middle of this pack of cars, all doing 180-odd mile an hour. And there's dust and shit and paper everywhere, and ice cream cones, and there's the smell of paint where some guys are scraping down the wall, smell of rubber where the tires are touching each other and touching each other's cars bits of paint flying in the window, and I mean, just <laughs> mayhem, and dust and crap everywhere, and I'm sitting there thinking, I'm not sure this is such a bloody good idea, aren't <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, the, uh, the rear roll bar link broke, which threw a lot of weight on the front of the car, and it, it popped the right front tire going into turn one, and I just hit the wall a glancing blow. But through all the drivers meetings, said, don't ever, don't ever come off the wall. Just, if you're on the wall, stay up there. So I let the field rush by me, and then I pulled in, and uh, Tex had a look at it, and we put it behind the wall, and hit it a few times with a big hammer. And he got the screwdriver out and did a few tweaks, and he said, yeah, well, it's no. so that was out. But I did go one more race in 76. I went to Michigan 400 um, in June. And I'm driving with a little guy called Junie Dunlavey. And Junie Dunlavey had been doing NASCAR since it started in about 1948. And he ran Fords. And his number one driver was Dick Brooks in the, in the 90. The 90. The 90 car was 90 to you and I, but it's 90 for those guys. In the 90. Because uh, they call it, that's 73. Um, and uh, they don't say it's a Chevrolet or it's the Coca-Cola car, it's David Hobbs car, it's the number. It's 73. It's a 73 car. So we go to Michigan. And... Um, Qualified about the middle of the pack again. Anyway, the race starts. And I don't know what the hell happened, but I passed Benny Parsons, then I passed Buddy Baker, then I passed, you know, Leroy Yarbrough, and suddenly I'm third. And the only guys in front of me are Darrell Waltrip and Cale Yarbrough. And I'm thinking, boy, oh boy, you know, this isn't so bad after all. And then the, the, the dream uh, turned into the nightmare. As I came off turn four, I spun it and this sucker went round and round and 360 straight into pit lane straight as a bloody arrow pulled up at the pits and Junie Dunlavey looked through the netting and said that's the finest bit of driving I ever seen <laughs> <laughs> I said well, well Junie us Brits you know we're just we're very we're very good at that sort of thing. <laughs> well, we're going to stay with American Tin Tops because you also <laughs> did Trans Am yeah. with a Camaro. You were, in fact, Trans Am champion. 
just tell us about the names of the people who were involved in that team. Well, Mrs. Hobbs and I are sitting at Hill Farm House, Upper Boddington, which is not to be confused with Lower Boddington, where a lower class of people live. But anyway, <laughs> we're at home at Upper Boddington, and the phone rings, and ding, 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 ding. Hello? Hi, is this David Harms? Yeah. Oh, hi, is John Dick here? John who? John Dick. Oh, hi, John. How are you? I'm good. Um, well, I'm in uh, I'm in Portland, Oregon. Oh yeah, nice nice place. Yeah. He said, yeah, I uh, I work for Neil Dealey, and he's he's a construction guy, and uh, we're running a team of Trans Am cars this year, and uh, we're going to have full Budweiser sponsorship, and we got Willie T. Ribs as, as, as your other driver, and said uh, we got Camaros, and uh, we're going to win the championship. I said, that sounds very good. Um, and he said, yeah. He said, I'm I'm the team manager, and he said uh, the two mechanics are the Dickey brothers, and I said, well, hold on a minute. I said, what's your name again? He said, John Dick. And I said, the mechanics are Dick, Dickies, and you I said, sounds like a lot of Dick in this team to me. But, uh. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, and he said uh, very funny, Dave. Uh, but then he said, uh, and he said, I really like you. I've been watching you for a long time. He said, and I realize you're a very mature driver. And I said, you mean old? He said, no, 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 mature driver. Because no. <laughs> at that time, I was nearly 45. So anyway, so I hung up. And Margaret said, who was that? And I said, John Dick. And uh, she said, oh, yeah, it was John Dick. <laughs> so I went the old story again. And anyway, about two days later, the bloody airline ticket flops through the letterbox. And off I go to Portland. And Mr. Diatley had a big construction firm. He, and he, did, he built railroads and he built road roads. Uh, and he was obviously a very wealthy guy. And he had these beautiful Camaros up on jack stands, you know. It's a great big shop. Beautiful shop, all the right equipment. And I meet, I meet the Dickey brothers. <laughs> I do. I can't remember what their names were. Not Tom, Dick, Ann, but anyway. <laughs> so we go out to Portland to the track to test. And then about five laps, I broke the lap record. I come in. I said, how's, that, how's it going? They said, well, you just broke the lap record by two seconds, so I guess you quite like the car. And I said, well, I suppose I do that, Kate. Anyway, we, yeah, we went on and, and won the championship. And you won the championship. Yeah. yeah. Now, we're going to go back see. to Le Mans briefly. Because Le Mans. There is one of the great Le Mans cars. That's the John Fitzpatrick 956. Yeah. And I think that was your best Le Mans finish, wasn't it? You were third. Yeah, I came third twice, so it's one of them. And, uh, but yeah, that was... If you've heard this story before, stop me. Um, <laughs> I had a terrific race with Klaus Ludwig, who won Le Mans two or three times, right, driving for Yost. And Klaus Ludwig was Kraut, obviously. And... Um, he was pretty good, Klaus. And he and I had a terrific dust-up at about 7 o'clock because those lovely French long evenings, because you've got to remember, it's, it's actually a lot further west than you think, Le Mans. Um, so at 7 o'clock in the evening, it's like sort of 5 o'clock in the afternoon here. It's a lovely, lovely evening. And we had a terrific dice, you know. And that, that was before the chicane, so you could draft each other. And those things, you know, they would do about 225, 230. And in the strip, slipstream, you get up to about 235, nearly 240 mile an hour because you'd, you'd slip soon. And you catch him up, but he's very slow. Then suddenly at the last minute, you'd zoom and shoot by. And, then, and anyway, we had a terrific little race. And then about six o'clock in the morning, we, we took the lead, and it was a good lead. I mean, it, you know, it wasn't like about half a lap. I mean, we had a good lead, and we thought, boy, we could win this. Um, and about an hour, half an hour later, it went on to five cylinders. 
So I come in the pits and they have a look and can't see anything. Obviously, I go off again and come in again. Then they disconnect the spark, take the spark plug out, disconnect the fuel, and off we go. And we ran that thing flat out on five cylinders, shaking like a banshee for, from seven in the morning till four in the afternoon, and we came third. And um, Extraordinary. what happened was that in the morning warm-up with the new engine, I accelerated out of the pits up to the Dunlop curve, and when I went to change, and the throttle stuck wide open, and, and it wouldn't come off, so I had to go around on the key, because it had a key start, those cars. Just like your Ford Escort. So I'm going on the key around, and of course it's eight miles, so once you start, I mean, it's a long bloody wait to go around, eight and a half miles, <laughs> on the key, and come in. Um, so they take the plenum chamber off, and there's a rag stuck down. Uh, one of the, um, the mechanic who changed the engine left a rag in the plenum chamber, it got sucked into the, uh, and, it, and it held the butterfly open. And that's the cylinder that went. So I think what happened was by holding the butterfly open, <laughs> it had a lot too much air but not enough fuel for that lap, and it probably set that valve off. So anyway, another one we should have run, but Mrs. Hobbs has heard this story before, so we, we'll, we'll go on to the next one I should have there won. There are so many stories, and uh, you are going to have to buy the book, because we've only scratched oh, the surface. <laughs> However, just finally, David, before we let you go, and what? before we ask I'm you sure. good people if you've got any questions. have got 20 years to go, yeah. There is, uh, well, I know, there is... Another very important part of your career because this is how I made my money. Long before you'd stopped racing, you were already working in broadcasting. Uh, yeah. There was something about your strange accent, which the Americans quite. The Americans to. loved it, they and um, they still do. And I, I've never lost my English accent. A lot of a lot of English people say, "Boy, you sound American," but to to Americans, I sound English. And uh, there's a lady called Judy Stropus who I've known for, well, she was the timekeeper yeah. for Roger when I drove in 1971, so how long is that, 45 years, 46 mm -hmm. years? And she said, oh, and she's, gonna, she's working for Eric Verden Rowe, selling my book in America, but it is actually here as well. So you don't have to go to America to buy it because it's actually here. But anyway, um, Judy said, oh God, she said, you're going to England for two weeks. She said, I won't be able to understand a word you say when you get back. <laughs> she said, every time you go to England, I can't understand you for a week. But um, That's actually the... Uh, that's last year, isn't it? That's yeah, NBC's coverage of the Monaco Grand Prix. Yep. You're in the middle. And on, on my left, uh, this guy here, Steve Matchett. And Steve Matchett came on board in 2001 uh, with speed. And he, became, he came on... Uh, technical analyst, he, he's, he's really good. He, he was a mechanic on Michael Schumacher's car at Benetton when he won the World Championship in 1994. And he worked with Ross Braun. He knows Ross Braun really well. Um, worked with Michael, Johnny Herbert, um, JJ Leto and all those other guys that drove Benetton. So he, and Lee Diffie on the left is an uh, Australian who's now an American citizen. And uh, he's a, a really good play-by-play -play announcer. Uh, Terrific, and he's just been doing a lot on the uh, Winter Olympics. NBC did the Olympics, and he's just done. But. So it, we it, had a good team there. I mean, it's uh, become the um, the norm now in covering motor racing that you have to have either an ex-driver or an ex-team boss like Eddie Jordan, uh, Damon Hill as a summarizer. Yeah. Uh, does it actually help you to be a better 
commentator if you actually have been out there and you know oh, what it yes, feels like. Oh, yes, immensely. Mm. I mean, every, every sport has... I mean, look at um, John McEnroe. I mean, to me, he's the greatest sports analyst, colour commentator in the world. I mean, he can just... He can read a tennis match while it's going on, uh, mm. point for point, and he can tell you who's going to win the point and how and where the ball's going to go. I mean, he's unbelievable. Um, mm. But it's the same with soccer. Mm. All ex-soccer players all become pundits. NFL players in America become pundits. And, um, and obviously, in, a, in the Olympics, where they have so many disciplines, I mean, you've got, you know, colour analysts coming out of the kazoo who, mm. you know, done skateboarding, done this, done that, you know, so... It's natural for drivers to do it, but I think it, I think it helps. And it adds a lot to it for the viewer because you can talk about it. I talk about it from an untechnical point of view, and obviously I talk about it from someone that's never won a race. So I really know. <laughs> <laughs> now, before we stop, ladies and gentlemen, I think there are a couple of microphones. I'm sure some of you will have some questions for you, David. First of all, David Hobbs. Thank you very much indeed. sure many of you have got questions. Usual rules apply. If you had the microphone, ask the question. So, first one, please. Well, it has to be one. Thank you, sir. Over to you. That's live, okay? Uh, David, like you, I lived within a few miles of Silverstone for many years. And for over 50 years, I've been to Silverstone. I've watched races. I've watched television. And a couple of years ago, I had the chance to drive around the Grand Prix circuit, and I hadn't a bloody clue where I was. How long did it take you to get to learn the circuit? <laughs> is, that, is that Jonesy? Yeah, afraid so. <laughs> I'll tell Mr. Knowles to tell you. Uh, no, I mean, you do learn circuits pretty... It's amazing how quickly you do learn circuits, actually. Because nowadays, they cheat like hell because they have all those simulators, so they go and they just get in the simulator, and by the time they get to the track, it's like they've been there all their lives. But, I mean... I remember going to Nürburgring in 1961 with Bill, and I couldn't believe how quickly we really did learn the circuit. Now, something as complicated as Nürburgring changes as the cars change in the Elite. There's a lot of uphill stuff at the Nürburgring, which, of course, in the Elite was flat out. But then when I went back in a Lola T70 with a big Chev engine, because it wasn't flat out then. Um, so that changed a bit. But learning a, 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 a circuit like Monte Carlo or... Yeah, which is a fairly complex little circuit, or Silverstone or whatever. It, it really doesn't take very many laps at all, actually, uh, before you're pretty much up to speed. Um, and my big failing was I'd, I'd find myself, I'd get up to a good speed very early on, and then I couldn't go any f faster, which I could never quite figure out. I thought, I must know it better now than I did this morning. I still can't go any faster. But, uh, yeah, it doesn't take long. It's amazing how quick you learn it, really. Another question, ladies and gentlemen. One right at the back. Thank you. Here we go, sir. David, who was your favourite teammate through the years? Oh, boy, I thought somebody might ask that. I had so many teammates, and I really... I got on very well with all of them, but... Um, Probably the biggest friend I had as a teammate and somebody who was, you know, very fast um, 
obviously not quite as fast as me, but very fast, was, um, was Mike Halewood. Because uh, he and I really hit it off very, very well. We got to know each other. Uh, and when we, once we got to know each other, we, we really hit it off. Well, our wives hit it off. You know, everybody liked everybody else. And so I was, I was always very happy driving with Mike, and he was quick as hell. And, um, and he was good fun, too, because we went to do the Springbok series in South Africa, which Mrs. Hobbs does not want to hear about because she was left at home in a freezing Britain for seven weeks while we were in South African sunshine. But I mean, it's a tough job and someone's got to do it. But <laughs> we went to Lorenzo March, which is whatever it is, with Portuguese East Africa, whatever it's called now, Angola. Um, anyway, we had this bloody awful mechanic with us who just kept on screwing things up. He set the car on fire twice. <laughs> and, um, <coughs> You know those lift, quick lift jacks where you push it down? Well, this Pratt has one under the back of the car, uh, under the front of the car, and then he goes and puts one on the back as well without saying to somebody, go and stand on the front jack. So he puts the one on the back, at which point the one on the front swings itself in a gigantic arc and goes straight through the fucking windscreen. And it's just, <laughs> this is like 20 minutes before the start of a three-hour race. So he rushes off downtown to try and find a windscreen, which he can't, obviously. And so I raced, I started the race without a windscreen, put the goggles on, and uh, opened, we took all the windows out. And anyway, uh, I'm humming right along, and it starts to rain a bit, and then it's time for a pit stop. <laughs> so I come into the pits, and there's Mike in his civvies, sitting in the back of the pits, reading the book. And he says, no, no, dear boy. I, I couldn't, I couldn't disturb your driving. I know how much you love it out there in the rain. <laughs> carry on, just, just carry on. <laughs> I came third. <laughs> just I should that. actually point out. Hate to give you another plug for the book, but actually, David has book. This, the, the book. The book. <laughs> there is, there is in, in a little appendix in the back. David's got a list of his favourite places to have a drink. Um, he's also got a list of his favourite. Ten co-drivers. Well, they're very tactfully. You've put them in alphabetical order rather than actually ranking them in order. Yeah. Let's have another question. Yeah. Over there. Anyone? Oh yes, right. Hold on. Otherwise, people can't hear the question. So, thank you very much. So it's the opposite of the prior question, which is who is the nemesis in terms of the driver that you kept coming across that you really wish you didn't. <laughs> You don't mean as a co-driver, you just mean just generally come across. Yeah. Boy, I don't remember. Well, well you've already mentioned Willie Morales. Yeah, Willie Morales. No one wanted to come across him. But there was a guy called George Drolsom in America, who's a lovely guy. He's a great guy. We, and we don't see much of him now. I don't think he's very well at the moment. But George was a bit older. He used to race the 911 in IMSA when I was racing the BMW 320. The BMW was not the best car to overtake because once you lifted off the throttle, it had a great big turbocharger and a little tiny four-cylinder engine. So once you lost momentum, it was hard to get it back again. And old George used to drive this bloody car down the middle of the road, and, it was, and he did it himself. So it was always leaking oil. And so every time you came across George Drolsom, you'd get a screen full of oil, and the track would be slippery as old Nick as well. So, uh, and, I, and I don't wish to speak ill of George Drolsom, but he was a... He was a bit of a nemesis for a while, old George, because he was, he was the oil specialist of the world. Preceded, actually, by, I suppose, really, old David Prophet was a pretty bad oil dropper, if I remember <laughs> yes, rightly. He, 
Yeah, well, he had a, this is probably a tip to L for everybody to remember, but David Prophet had a car which we all nicknamed the Torrey Canyon. The Torrey Canyon was, a, <laughs> if you remember, it was a, a, um, an oil tanker which uh, exactly. leaked away. But David Prophet's car, we called it the Torrey Canyon. Yeah. <laughs> so, another, question. Another, another question, ladies and gentlemen. One right over there. Hold on. I will get to you. <laughs> There we go. Old David Prophet, I've forgotten about him. Mm. Uh, uh, David, I'd like to ask you about a long time ago at Brands Hatch. I remember you driving um, a Brian Math, is it a Mathwall V8 Falcon? A what? Mathwall Engineering V8 Falcon. Well, really, it belonged to Malcolm Gartland. Was that a Malcolm Mathwall Garland, car? That's it, yeah. Yeah. Brian Muir, didn't he drive the Mathwall car? Yeah. Anyway, 1968. Yeah, Brian Muir and I had some titanic battles uh, in our Falcons, and we were always un unmercifully harried by Frank Gardner in that poxy, um, bloody Allen Man, a golden red Cortina, uh, uh, Escort, yeah. which I think won the championship. Um, but Brian and I had some good races in that Falcon. Um, and I tell you, some bloke asked me a question, he's writing a book, uh, and he wants a story of me driving the Falcon at... Um, where the hell was it? Anyway, I can't even remember going there. I just can't remember the race at all. But I, one of my better races was Silverstone in the Falcon with, with Malcolm, and I was leading. And going to Woodcut, on the old Woodcut, you know, no chicanes, no, flat out, big, fast corner. And I suppose even in the old Falcon, you know, you're going through there at 125, I suppose 130, quick anyway. Anyway, I'm in front, and we're just going over the line for the, to start the last lap. And he comes down the inside and flick his left front fender catches my right rear fender. Of course, the car's all like that, you know, and it just <laughs> round I went, dropped it in the ditch, facing the wrong way. And those V8s, it had car bread, so when he wanted to start, because he wouldn't start when he stopped it quickly like so. <laughs> and I stagger off down the pit road, going not very fast. And the crew is all leaning over the wall going, come on, come on. I said, come on yourself, you dozies. Anyway, so I thought, well, they must have a reason. So I legged it down through cops and maggots and come out of uh, chapel. And there's old Boogaloo Muir down hanging straight. Because boom, 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 boom. He, he'd cut the left front on the back of my car. Oh. And I swooped by. <laughs> and won the race. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, Marvin, and, um, and my boys, one. our little boys were there. That was 68. So Greg was, uh, well, Guy was four and Greg was six. So I took them around on the victory lap. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. 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 One, one last question. question, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, any more for any more? One more there. Okay. I'm going to lean over here, Robin. There you go. David, what category of racing through all those types that you've talked about has given you the most pleasure and what you would like to remember as the most fun that you ever had? Well, I suppose I ultimately was probably best known for GT racing. Uh, you know, the GT40s, the 962s, BMW 320. Um, but the most satisfying cars to drive, I think, are, you know, big single-seaters. Um, not very keen on all this momentum racing like Formula 3s and little, little single-seaters, but something with some, you know, some gusto. 
like a Formula 5000. They were, they were pretty good fun to drive because in a single-seater, you really feel like you're part of the car. And in any two-seater, whether it's a GT, whether it's a Ferrari like Mike Wilde still drives to this day, even in spite of the fact he's 99, um, they, <laughs> there's something about a, a car, you, you know, you feel a lot of car around you, and it, uh, but a single-seater, you really feel as if you are part of the car. And um, there's something really satisfying about driving a, a single-seater quick. And um, one of the most satisfying races I had was the Formula 5000 race, probably at the May meeting at Silverstone before the Formula 1 race. And the Formula 1 race was a combined Formula 1, Formula 5000 race on the Sunday. And on the Saturday, we had a Formula 5000 race. And I won it. Uh, and going through Woodcote in that car, the, the, the left front was really taking a hiding, and it was a bit iffy whether the thing would go through the race. But I could still see myself going through. And then those, in the Formula 5000 car, you're probably going through Woodcote at 145, maybe, maybe more. And there was just something about that. And I won the race. It was 100, average speed was like 135 mile an hour, which was, for one day, the fastest ever race on a road course in Britain. Unfortunately, Ronnie Peterson buggered that up the next day in this one. <laughs> but only by about half a mile an hour. I mean, he averaged like 135 or something. So. But there's single seaters, there's just something about them, I think, that are great. Um, yeah. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we've, we've got to call a halt there. Um, you must be sick of hearing all the commercials for this wonderful book. But what book? The, the, the publisher, Eric Verdon, What's Rowe, called? sitting over there, tells me... Uh, he's, he, I've worked for him for about 40 years, and I can tell you, he's one of the meanest men I've ever met. <laughs> and it is quite extraordinary. I don't know, he must have had a sort of bad dream in the night or something, because he says he is prepared, ladies and gentlemen, to sell you this 50-pound book for, did you say 40 or 45? 40. You can buy this 50-pound book for 40 pounds if you buy it now, I and you may even be able to get David to sign it for you. But first, can we have a very big hand Absolutely. for this wonderful hand, David Hall. Thank you very much. Uh, now, Simon, Simon, before we go any further, you know we always like to present our um, Motorsport Legends series guests with uh, something rather special. So I'd like to ask Neil Bailey, our chairman, to join me and present, David, this rather special piece of concrete. Oh, not a book. Not a book. <laughs> not many know this, but every night we send Steve out with a little hammer and he goes on the circuit. This is what he takes wow. on the circuit. There's not right. much of it left. My gosh. How brilliant. Enjoy and thank you so thank much. You. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. That is, ladies and gentlemen, David, a piece of the 1908 track here at Brooklands. Wow. A bit of clag still left there in there. There is loads Wolfgang, of it in there, and it's got Klinska. the dust to prove it. So thank you very <laughs> thank much. Thank you indeed. very much, Steve. Thank you. Good Thanks to see you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Right. So whilst we we set up the raffle. Okay. Tim, are we ready to go?